yeah, having my head shoved into the uh, steps of the Ulster Bank in Ranelagh, cold butt of a gun put into the back of your skull. That's a moment where you go, okay, yeah, I think this one's up. How does a high-flying academic become one of Ireland's most prolific bank robbers? What I would see is the most important part of this still lies open. I'm not here to hurt you. A brand new series from the award-winning team behind the Indo Daily. That November day, that's where it all, all begins. Out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Shachtan, an Indo Askeliga. Time imon irok the yen of chacht erachor. Agus suligam a makan sha gurfeder erachor inuik kiart len of winter fein. Skilti fis turmi. Tashe dochretche nach vetoch ara egornamian on kestchen ekol. Vien talam aginam griv arkar nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. This is an Irish independent podcast. Apple, Google and Microsoft are joining forces to kill off passwords. They say they're going to try to replace passwords by using smartphones as two-factor authentication via things like a PIN number or a fingerprint and using that for verification on an operating system or a website. But will this work? And what should you be doing now to protect yourself with the passwords you already use? Well, joining me to discuss this is Connor Flynn, Managing Director at Waystone Compliance Solutions. Connor. I looked at some of the most recent research from NordPass and it shows that we're still using phrases like one, two, three, four, five, six, QWERTY and shockingly, password as our most popular passwords. It's frightening. And the the research is year on year uh, more and more damning. And, you know, that in parallel with the number of breaches that we are seeing that are reported specifically based on uh, the ability to guess or harvest somebody's password. And many, many of the uh, compromises and the large scale uh, attacks that we see that are very successful across the globe are actually targeting things like the password and the triviality with which the password can be guessed or given to the attacker by the person themselves. So the, the password, which Many, many years ago, when you know, we came up with the concept of authentication and the user ID and the password, the password was your secret. It was your token. It was the piece that was difficult you know, 20 years ago. But people haven't moved on during that time. And what, you know, people thought that, well, I'm making my password complex by putting a capital P in and two fives instead of the S's, and that's me sorted. And um, you know, unfortunately, we're still living in that, 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 that mindset for a lot of people. So... This initiative by you know, what I'm going to call big tech, it's you know, the, the Apple, the Googles, and the others are going to follow. Um, that is really the only way we're going to, to, to get this sea change that we need with regard to protecting that, that most fundamental of our, our, our rights. It's our identity. And you know, people forget that the, 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 the trivial and the simple password that we use to protect ourselves online is actually what protects the very root of our identity in the, in the, the online world. 
Yeah, well, it's not hard to guess the identity sometimes looking at NordPass's list of most popular passwords. I mean, I mentioned one, two, three, four, five uh, and password. Most of them, the most popular ones are a combination of numbers, but also football teams like Liverpool or Arsenal are popular. I Love You is popular. And one of the more popular ones, and this kind of took me by surprise as, as a, a signal into the identity of the people who are using it is fuck you. That's actually one of the most popular passwords. And um, we, don't, we don't have a, a, a test for uh, you know, foul language and any of the password systems. So it, it doesn't surprise me, actually. Yeah. No. Um, so in terms of what Microsoft, Google and Apple, among others, are suggesting is a kind of a two-factor authentication process, which seems to be centered around the smartphone. The idea being that uh, you might use a biometric signal like a fingerprint, maybe it could be facial recognition, and that will be used in combination with something else to gain access to uh, a website or a service. Does that sound like a reasonable thing? I think it is. And it is an evolution, I think, of what they, those companies you mentioned and others have tried to do in the last few years, which is what we've known as multi-factor or two-factor authentication. So if you've got your Gmail account or your um, Microsoft Outlook account, there have been strong recommendations and they've tried to force people to actually use their authenticator apps, which would you know, generate a code or do, you'd have to get an approval or in some cases they send you a text message. Can I just stop you there? I, even as you use that term authenticator app, I know that there will be a certain percentage of listeners right now who will shudder because they will be using, for example, Microsoft's Authenticator app. And we all know why it's there. And it works. And yet it can be kind of infuriating to every 10 minutes to have to use an Authenticator app. It, it can be frustrating. And the, you know, what Microsoft and the others have got better at is what they're calling, without getting too technical about this, but conditional access. And the principle behind conditional access is that if I'm using the same IP address and the same computer, over a period of time, it won't keep nagging me by going back and asking me to re-authenticate re with the app. So there are improvements coming based on user feedback, which are saying that, well, the, the likelihood is that the person hasn't moved away from the computer, that it is still them because of X, Y, and Z parameters, and I won't nag them again. So we've had these you know, concepts introduced as the way to deal with you know, the, the, the weakness of passwords but it's not ubiquitous. And it still does exactly what you, you say there is it nags a little bit and it, it isn't easy from the user interface perspective. And we have competing standards out there. We have you know, people who are using the Google Authenticator app. There are people using the Microsoft Authenticator app. There's the Okta app. The, you, know, you have all of these. Now, we do see big retailers. For instance, Amazon. Amazon don't try to push their own version. What they're saying is, use your Microsoft or your Google Authenticator app. We will use those because we recognize the, uh, I suppose the integrity with which those apps are, are working. But what we're talking about here is the next evolution of that, where we won't have to put in the password that we're keying in and then approve it with the app or put in the, the digits from the text message or something like that is that we go straight to approving it on the, the app or the, whether it's a ubiqui key that there's, you know, there, there are different um, options that are coming along. And the FIDO, uh, 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 I suppose, alliance that is uh, put together to, to move this on is not being prescriptive by saying, you must use this app and this app only. 
it's coming up with a, a series of protocols uh, and this is what's going to actually i think push the the adoption of it much more easily is that it's a cross-industry um, attempt and it will not be specific to one manufacturer trying to flood the market with their solution mm. i wonder is there room for facial recognition in all of this because in the last couple of weeks, we've seen MasterCard announce that it is introducing facial recognition as a way to pay for things. In fact, it's introduced it uh, with a partner in Brazil in five grocery stores in Sao Paulo. And it, MasterCard says it plans to roll this out globally later this year. Now, anyone who has you know, a recently bought iPhone will know how facial recognition works, Face ID, and broadly can have trust in it. Very few other technology companies or systems or ecosystems have implemented it really with a huge degree of trust and acceptance, though. I wonder, will this take a while to, uh, you know, to bed down into our consciousness or whether we're ready to accept that? I think there's a, a few questions in there. Um, I think there's the, the trust piece first. Um, one of the things I can't change if it gets compromised is my face. So I have to have very strong confidence with whatever service provider I intend to use for facial recognition that they themselves will not be breached in a way that means that now my facial recognition features are can be misused at some point. And Samsung have done this as well as, as Apple. And one of the things that I think stood up to a lot of criticism, a critique, probably more than criticism, and you know, analysis within the security industry and even the, the open source industry on the Apple side was that your facial recognition details never leave your phone. So you've got the Apple enclave, this secure processing environment, and during the, reg the initial registration that your users will be familiar with, you have to move your face around and it scans and it uses some of the LiDAR functions. It uses some of the different uh, frequency cameras as part of the whole, whole process of gathering the profile of the user. But it stores that in the secure encrypted enclave on the phone. It never leaves to go up into the Apple cloud or elsewhere. And those kind of consumer and, you know, I suppose the technical skeptics, you know, the, the, the confidence building measure where they're quite open about how they protect it, I think will help with the adoption. Mm. And that's going to be a key part of it. Um, it's also how they do it as well, because with Face ID, for example, it's actually a 3D scan of your face. So it actually measures the depth. It, it, if you've got a big nose like me, it will, it will know that you've got a big nose. And Or if your face is changing, it takes a scan of it every day so it knows your face is changing. With some of the other systems, Samsung, for example, have a form of facial recognition on their phones, but they admit that it's not based on depth. It's only based on likeness, which means that Samsung admits that it can be fooled more easily by, say, a high-resolution photograph. And some of the uh, security testers have demonstrated that that they've actually been able to do exactly as you've described. So this is where I think the, the tech behind it, and hopefully what, one of the things that FIDO will do is it will help build standards for what will be the entry point to an Alliance certified uh, platform, which will mean that you, you, you won't have the capability of fooling it with a high-res image or even a 3D image. Um, we looked at some tech recently from a, a company in the identity and verification space called IDPAL. And one of the things that they do is during that verification, they actually do a liveness test. So they require you to actually blink 
and to move your face to show that not just an, an image or a 3D or a mannequin. So that there are requirements and this is you know, the liveness test is a very important part, I think, of any of these sort of technologies. And it's what's built into face ID as well. So we're beginning to see companies coming up with um, initiatives and you know, technical innovation which give confidence to, I, I think, the, the, the security uh, persons who will be looking at it. And if we want to accept it as going to be, uh, I suppose, an architecture or a foundation principle for uh, authentication in the future, it has to be bulletproof. It has to be beyond reproach and demonstrably so, and not just a secret say, well, trust our magic sauce. Or fooled by uh, Tom Cruise's Mission Impossible latex uh, masks. Um, just Coming back to passwords for a second, things like LastPass, OnePassword, NordPass, are they worth looking at? I think so. Um, I think that we, we have a period of time where the um, the adoption of the passwordless authentication is going to take years to, to, to work its way through the system. And not all retailers, not all you know, banks, whatever it is you interact with at the moment, um, you know, would be able to, 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 to move to that you know, in a quick um, way. So what I, I think is that if you look at the, the products you mentioned there, mm-hmm. what they do is they, they have, like I mentioned for the Apple environment, they have this secure enclave. They've got this secure, highly protected, encrypted, and in most cases, open to peer review. They actually you know, make this uh, you know, technology available for uh, analysis. And it allows you to have multiple passwords, incredibly complex, stored in a system that you don't even know yourself a lot of the time. And that's one of the magic uh, things I like about them is that you will not be susceptible to a phishing attack, to social engineering, because you don't know the password yourself to type in. And you're, you're beginning to get almost into a token based authentication system that's on, built on passwords, but is not removes one of the weaknesses of passwords, which is the user knowing it. And because they have so many, they choose poor ones, they choose repeated ones and common ones across systems. So I think that uh, any of the market leading, and you know, I'm not saying that they have to be commercially expensive, but the, the ones that are uh, industry and peer reviewed would be a, a very good idea for anybody. It's worth reminding ourselves, isn't it, that if you are the type of person who uses the same password for multiple services, and let's say you've used done that for years, it's almost certain that that password is floating around there in a data breach, isn't it? It is. And one of the things I like to say to people when we do cybersecurity awareness training and uh, you know, information sessions about this is uh, go to uh, Have I Been Pawned? Uh, website and that's have know, I been p w n e d yeah p have I been pwned. yes uh, so I, mean, I think you know we we could include it maybe in the information with the podcast as, as a reference but it, it lists all the d- the dumps that have taken place from um, previous breaches of uh, systems and it goes back to people like Yahoo and LinkedIn and all these uh, big famous ones where there are tens of millions of credentials taken and you can check based on your email address and one of the things i like now as well adrian is that you can check your phone number and you know because we're seeing people being targeted with uh vishing and uh, smishing campaigns so there's a really good site to check out there and it'll get it'll list out for you then as well based on your use your email address or something like that what the systems were yeah i i i 
visit that site maybe once or twice a year just to check whether I've been hoovered up in any recent data breach. And I change my password fairly regularly, so I'm not too concerned. But I remember one security researcher showing me a bunch of my passwords from a couple of years ago that he had just picked up. He had just gone, you know, snooping around. And uh, because everybody's email account is caught up in one data breach or another, he was able to show me what my previous passwords were. And even though I knew that such a thing was possible, it still does give you the wobbles when you see it. It does, because like that's somebody doing it for an ethical purpose. Um, and the the ease with which not only is it for people to go and Hoover um, you know, individually, but the, the the for sale volumes of these on the underworld of the, 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 the reference dark web where these sort of credentials are for sale, it's not just Adrian Weckler or Connor Flynn's user ID and password. It is the profiling of the person. So I've got Adrian's um, Amazon account. I've got his Google account. I also have his you know, stockbroker access because he uses the same one. Um, we've got you know, a profile on his credit and whether, and they charge different rates for the purchase of that information based on the perceived target value. And it is quite phenomenal. Quite efficient, actually. It, it, it really is. I mean, it is a marketplace. And they, they've built up this incredible reporting capability for making the, the target sales attractive and graded in price for um, what, what you're getting. So, yes, it, it is quite scary. Um, I, I, one thing, I've, a couple of the browsers and Apple and, uh, have introduced recently is that in your browser, if you're going to a particular site and you're using a, it's cached a password for it that has shown up in a hack before, it will now tell you every time you start the browser. And this is beginning to get you know, into, people, into people's face more. And I think this is a good initiative as well, because it's now, it's, I wonder if it's happened. This is now telling you it has. It is telling you that password. And it'll even tell you which systems for those passwords were compromised for. If you're not going to use a password generator like LastPass, what is a good way to come up with a, a password that you will remember if you want to know what your password is? So the, the National Cybersecurity Center in the UK came up with a good one there last year, I think, or the year before, and they call it three good words. And it's a, it's a very easy one for people to remember. So it might be hockey, Renault, cloud. And you put the three of those together, and that's quite a complex password. And particularly if you put in um, you know, something like, well, I'm going to you know, uh, capitalize the first letter of each word. And I'm going to change you know, two of them to number, add in two numbers or something. So it, it becomes a very easy way. But three good words is a very simple principle. And I think the National Cybersecurity Center you know, advocate this. And I, I think it's, it's quite a good one. Myself, I had talked to people before and some of my training is you know, come up with a sentence. The um, one I've used is the name of my eldest daughter is Tabitha. And I pick out the, the first letter of each of the words in that. And I capitalize maybe each of the ones that are every second word or something like, like that. So again, it is something that is incredibly easy so for me to just, remember. Sorry, how would that go then? I don't, I don't want to know your password, but how, typically how might that pass, what might that password look like then? So if, if I was going to say the name of my firstborn daughter is Tabitha, I would say T-N-O-M-F-D-T. 
Okay. Something like that. And then I would say. If everybody's listening to that, it's a free for all on Connor's (laughs) accounts for the next week. My my email address is (laughs) adrian.weckler. Yeah, exactly. Um, Now, you mentioned the National Cyber Security Center. Just briefly before we go, it's been a year, a little more than a year, since the devastating cyber attack on the HSC services. Do you think we're in a better place now in terms of protecting the country? I do. And unfortunately, it often takes a crisis to get a reaction. And um, again, we mentioned the National Cyber Security Center. We, we've seen their resources significantly increased as part of the, the incident response. The awareness that it has created across the public and private sectors in Ireland about the potential devastation for, first of all, missed warnings, and secondly, user awareness, and then the, um, I suppose, keeping your software up to date. And these are messages that were clearly laid out in the PwC report that was um, commissioned and and was published, which is really useful. I mean, I I guess that still falls into the realm of best practice and advice. I put in a question to the HSE a few months back, it was about Windows 7 computers and the number, and they, they still have a number of Windows 7 computers operating there. They say it's not connected to the web, therefore it's not a problem, except the IT legitimacy of that. Nevertheless, when I talked to um, some uh, tech researchers, security researchers, some of them are still a little concerned that we may not fully be there. We, we did have the director of the National Cybersecurity Center, Richard Brown, on this podcast about two months ago. And he seemed very knowledgeable and he was very articulate and he put out a very good case as to what the National Cyber uh, Security Center does and what it's what it can and what it can't do. I mean, he obviously stopped short from saying that the National Cyber Security Center here could fend off a mass attack because it's not what it does. So I'm just wondering whether there is confidence if we saw another attack along the same lines of the HSE, whether we would be better placed to bat it off. And you think maybe we would? I think we would. I think that there's there are a lot of lessons learned. And I hate using political adages when we're talking about the, the public sector, but you know, the, 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 there's an old one that there's a lot done, more to do. Um, and that there is definitely absolutely no reason for, uh, no basis for complacency. I think that there there has been progress and it has been a wake up call and it has definitely uh, directed resources that were not forth, forthcoming in the past. Um, it has definitely made resources available where they weren't available previously. And I think one small example would be in the defense paper, the uh, uh, commissioning that, that happened recently. The, we went for option two, I think, the, the government, and there's a very significant commitment to cyber with regard to the uh, Department of Defense and the Minister and the Defense Forces. And there, that is going to be, I think, a, an important part of a, any future capability is having a, we're not an, an offense nature, you know, directed uh, military organization. We, we are very focused on defense. I think that this will be a, an important part of that in helping yeah, I, the future. I, I think you're being kind as well to our uh, capacity or our intention in being you know in having a defense capability i know that senators jared crockwell and i think it was malcolm Byrne as well in the last few weeks 
have raised questions as well. They're both quite critical about Fibers Ireland's cyber defence uh, readiness. But it's good to hear from uh, somebody who knows the landscape fairly well that it's not dire and that maybe um, we are we have learned lessons. I think I think it is fair to say we've learned lessons. I think something else is going to be important as well is that at an EU level, the Network and Information Security Directive, uh, the NIS Directive, as it's known, has been you know, transposed into uh, their statute books. And the, there is a requirement for um, a baseline, which has now been established, for, again, for the public sector and available for the private sector, which will help raise the level of awareness. And for people who are providing essential services in the private sector as well, they fall in scope for this. And that, to me, I think is the first time that we have seen uh, the, 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 the requirement coming for regulating private sector operators of essential services. And that, that, that's definitely an improvement as well. OK, listen, thanks so much for joining us today. Connor Flynn, Managing Director at Waystone Compliance Solutions. And from me, Adrian Weckler, the tech editor of The Irish and Sunday Independent. Thanks a million for listening. And we'll be back with you the same time next week. Bye bye. 